0: So in um, chapter 7, we looked at the champion of grace. I, I think that I would love to just stop at the champion of grace. Because you see, Jesus not only came with grace. You know, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. But he exemplified this grace over and over again. Some years ago... I was asked to do a retreat on humility. And they gave me the passage in John chapter 13. And remember from like my Nebuchadnezzar experience from the first week? Well, I had a second one. I was ready to tell those women how to be humble. I'm in trouble every time I try to do that. Every time. In fact, sometimes I'm asked to do a retreat and I'm like, what is the theme? If they say spiritual warfare, I'm like, oh, you know what? Kathy Gilbert really is good on that. I don't do that to Kathy, but it's like hard. It's like, oh, I, asked, I was asked one time to do a retreat on joy. I'm like, I'm yours. You know, signed, sealed, and delivered. I'll do the retreat on joy. But humility, right? And I thought I had it and others needed it. In fact, Brian and I, in the beginning of our marriage, we got in a fight over which one of us was more humble. <laughs> which kind of shows that we both needed it. But I was asked to, to speak, and I was, I was given John chapter 13. You know, here's Jesus' humility. And I had been in the Old Testament for a really, really long time. You know, I like to go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, then turn around and go Genesis through Revelation again and again and again. And I was in the Old Testament. I wasn't reading the New Testament. Now I have this practice that every day I read a portion of the Gospels and whatever other portion I'm in. Because when I begin to read John chapter 13, that Jesus, knowing who he was and all that the Father had given him, he got up from the dinner table while all the rest of the disciples are now arguing over who's the greatest, who's the most humble, who's the most deserving. Jesus puts on the garments of a servant, and he fills up the basin with water. And I think that these disciples are so engrossed with who's the greatest or who's the most deserving that they're kind of not paying attention to Jesus. They don't understand how important this hour is. That within hours, their Lord, their Savior, will be crucified. They're so busy Uh, talking about their own advancement, their own dreams, their own desires, the kingdom that they want. And then Jesus comes with this towel, and he comes with this basin of water, and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. I don't know how you feel about feet, but I'm not really into them. I have this, I love Reflexology, I love to have my feet massaged. And my dad used to, um, we would do this thing when I was a little girl. My mom and I would play beauty shop. And my dad had to come in and massage our feet. (laughs) And he would put all this moisturizer in his hand, like, because he was strong and he was kind of like overcompensating. And so it would be like a pile. And he'd grab our feet and he'd just kind of squeeze. And we would be laughing so hard because it would tickle, but it was part of the game, and he'd be like, oh, madame, your foot, and he'd be just, you know, part of it. My mom would be like, do you think he's cute? I think I want to marry him. And it would be this, this whole game that they would play with me as a little girl. And so I guess because of that, I just love it. So I, I say to Brian, massage my feet. And he looks at them and he goes, you've been walking barefoot outside again, How about you? Cheryl, they're black. They, they're, they've got, were you on the street? And I do. I, I walk barefoot every place. It was the hippie era. But my dad never seemed to care that his hands turned black from the soot on my feet. But Brian, he's like, if you wash your feet, I will, I will massage them. But then he's trying to do his cell phone, you know, and massage my feet at the same time, you know. And then he's like. You know, and you know how men are when they massage you? They just do one spot. You know they like move your hand. They do. I think that at a I think at the next couples retreat, this is what we do. We have a separate class for men on how to give massages to their wives. And the women, we learn how to make cookies, right? how to make salsa, something that they'll enjoy. So here's Jesus, and here's these disciples. They wear sandals on the feet of Israel. There are no, um, there are no streets that are clean. The streets they walk on have animal debris all over them. People empty their, their buckets and everything in the gutters along the street, whether it's dirty water or refuse. It's all on the streets, and this is where these disciples are walking. Not only that, because they walk in sandals and they don't have orthotics. Their feet are gnarled. They're calloused. They probably have fungus. Who knows what those feet look like? But you don't know Jesus going down going, where did you walk? I kept. Oh, look at Peter's toe. Do you see this? So bad. But look how loving I am. I'm going to wash it, even though gross. Gross. He just washes their feet. No commentary. He just washes their feet. He doesn't complain. He doesn't say, "You know what, John? Your feet aren't as bad as your brother's, James." There's no comparisons. There's, there's, Peter tries to bring competition in. Lord, I can't believe these others let you wash their feet. You will never wash my feet. Can't believe you let Jesus wash your feet. Lord, I should be washing washing your feet. And Jesus just looks at Peter and says, Peter, just let me do this. Because if you don't, You won't be clean. You can't have anything to do with me. then Peter, grandstanding as usual, then wash my whole body. (laughs) This is the way we're going to play this. And Jesus says, no, he that has been cleansed needs only that his feet are washed. Every day we're going to need foot washing. All of us are going to need our feet washed washed because of the grime and the pollution in this world. Every day we need a foot washing. And Jesus said, I have given you an example that as I have done, you should do for each other. He's not talking about a literal foot washing. He's talking about an attitude. An attitude of grace that simply washes someone's feet, doesn't point out, excuse me, I'm about to wash feet because I'm a nice person, doesn't point to the grime on the feet, doesn't compare the feet, just simply washes it. I think this is what Peter was talking about when he says love covers a multitude of sins. Jesus wants us to wash each other's feet without telling anyone we did it, without making a big deal about it, just doing it. This is is the type of stuff Jesus did. And as I was reading John chapter 13, I was just struck with how I was thinking my feet were so much cleaner than everybody else's feet. I thought I, I, I was Peter. You know, I look at all the disciples, and I want to be Andrew because he's always bringing people to Jesus, and he just seems like the nicest. But I find myself being more like Peter, saying things at the wrong time, ruining holy moments. You know, let's build three tabernacles because I can't think of anything else to say. I see myself, you know, just getting it wrong, No, no, no children. God's saying, yes, children. And the Lord began to convict me. I can't make myself humble. I can't teach on humility. But I can look to Jesus. And as I look to Jesus, and as I begin to see him as my champion, I am humbled. You know, the closer you are to Jesus, the more humble you'll be. Because the more you'll realize that he is truly the champion, the champion. You know, in the presence of someone great, you can't help but get weak-kneed. You, you can't help but feel that that, like, why are you talking to me? Years ago, everything's in the past in my life. That's what happens when you're three-quarters of the way through with it. I was at a, 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 I had this, Brian and I had this friend. I had coordinated her wedding. I was there right after she got saved. Um, Brian had become her first pastor. And when she got married, she always dreamed about having Brian as the pastor. So uh, Brian and I had flown out to Pennsylvania. Brian had done the wedding. I had coordinated it, told everyone where to stand. So when she did her first banquet, her first huge banquet, she was a, um, she worked in the Senate. And it was with all these senators, and it was all all these important people. Somebody loaned me a St. John knit dress, a St. John knit suit. Somebody else loaned me a pair of shoes. Somebody else loaned me a Fendi bag to wear. Somebody else loaned me earrings and a necklace. So I was not myself. Like, the only thing that I owned was, like, my makeup and my underwear. Everything else belonged to somebody else. And so I'm sitting at this table, and I'm with really important people. You know, Stephen Curtis Chapman and his wife and this other couple, and they were both disc jockeys, and they owned this radio station in Texas, and there were other important people, and Muhammad Ali got to, you know, up to speak. And then he comes to the table, and he's like, you, pointing to me. And um, we had a short conversation about hell. Really interesting. Some other time. <laughs> but then what happened is Bruce Willis was like... From there to, well, no, more like from here to here to me. Our, our chairs were just like this. <laughs> like my back was to his back. Like we were like feeling it. And um, <laughs> there was this huge line of all these people with their, with their autograph books. And they're all waiting in line to get Bruce Willis's autograph. And then they look at our table. And they look at me in my St. John knit suit and they're like, who are you? <laughs> and I'm like. I am no one. I'm not important. You don't want my signature. I am so not on your radar. They're like, oh. <laughs> and it happened over and over again. Who are you? Is anyone important at this table? No. What's he do? Pointing to Brian. He's a pastor. Oh. I'm his wife. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> happened over and over again until this one Senator Belfris, came up and he said, who are you? I said, I'm just a housewife married to that guy who's just a pastor. He goes, there's no such thing as just a pastor or just a housewife. He said, you a mom? And I said, yes. He goes, you're very important. He said, are you a praying mom? I said, absolutely. He said, then you're super important, and you're the person I want to talk to tonight. And he says, will you pray for me? So that was just a side note, which was cool. But I want to just talk about how unimportant I am. <laughs> how insignificant, and I felt it. Until Bill Frist came up, and you know my thought was, "Why are you talking to me? I am so unimportant you 're a senator you 're a doctor i 'd read an article on him where um, he had stopped on his way to the Senate because he saw an accident, and he ministered to the people who were who were injured, and he bound up their wounds and he started you know giving orders just like this Amazing man, but I'm thinking, why are you talking to me? I am so unimportant. I'm not on your radar. I can't do anything for you. I can't even give to your campaign because my kids took all my money. I have nothing. <laughs> I have nothing. And yet I was, I was so impressed with his kindness, with his, with his attentiveness. It just humbled me to the core that he would spend time talking to both Brian and I. It was amazing. But how much more the King of kings and Lord of lords who humbled himself and became a man and took on flesh and blood that he might fight for us, that he might fight the devil. I was just reading the temptation of Christ in Matthew 4, that he might fight and resist the devil, that he might show grace to his enemies and to his friends, washing their feet, being a servant. Jesus is so amazing, so great, so kind, so beneficent, so wonderful. And he came in grace. If he had come in truth alone, we'd all be dead. None of us could stand up to his righteousness. But he came with grace and truth, grace first. And he won on the cross grace for us. When he died, he won grace for us, grace that covers all our sins, grace that brings us into the riches of of the Messiah, Grace that gives us all the promises of God. Such grace. And he exemplifies grace over and over again. He came with grace. He is the source of all grace. He exemplified grace. He gave grace. He fought for grace. And he gives us grace. And he wants us to be so filled with grace. So the call of Jesus to all of us is to first know the grace that he has given us. Know it. Know it that you're forgiven as far as the east is from the west. Know how loved you are. But fill your heart with this grace. Fill it. Accept it. Receive it. Apply it. Fill up with it. Now, going to the next chapter, chapter 8. God has this grace, and he wants to call us as ambassadors to this grace. He wants to use us to share the grace that we have received with others. He wants to offer this grace to everyone, but there's a problem It's called the Jonah problem, and we all got it. We all have it. We want grace. We're very selective with grace. We could probably make two lists, one that we want people to have grace and the other one the people we don't want to have grace. And if we're honest, unless you're having a really good day, I want everyone to have grace. If you're honest, there's at least one person you're like, really? We're going to give them grace? After what they said, after what they did, grace. Jonah was called by God to grace. You know what's interesting to me? Sometimes the people that are shown the most grace are the most graceless people. I ha- Thank you. I was coming, I was coming out of uh, Sprouts, where I practically live, and if I was more organized, I wouldn't be there as much. But I'm coming out of Sprouts, and there's a lady begging for money. And I happened to have $5. That's all I had. And I gave her the $5. And she looks at me and she goes, you think this is enough? You think this is going to help me? I don't know where she was from, but she did have an accent. You think this is enough? Look at you. How many bags of groceries did you get? You've got three or four. And you give me $5. And I looked at her and I said, can I have it back? I mean, honestly, I want it back. No, you may not have it back, you cheapskate. I said, that's all the cash I have. Well, why don't you take me into the market and buy me everything I want, everything I need? I said, one, I don't know you. Two, I should report you. I was in a bad mood to CPA because you've got your kids out here begging too, and this is is wrong. And I said, I was doing that for the daughter. And I said, you know, you're just not very nice. That's probably why you don't have a job. I was in a bad mood. Bray was in the car. He's like, what was going out there? "Uh, I don't know, just sharing the gospel with somebody. He said, I saw you. You gave her money. I said, yeah, I wanted it back, but uh, nevertheless. But, you know, sometimes the people that need the most grace are the most graceless. And I think Jonah's one of those people. He didn't want to show grace to Nineveh. Why? Well, he was very much a patriot, you know, up with Israel, down with Ninevites, down with every country that's not wearing the red, white, and green, down. He was very ethnocentric, very for his people, to the point where he couldn't see the need of of any other people. And God calls him to Nineveh. He hates the call so much. Does not want to show grace. In fact, in chapter 4, he said, I knew if I went, you'd show them grace. <laughs> knew it. I mean, he's mad about the grace of God. He doesn't want to show them grace. So he tries to run from God, right? God calls him 500 miles over land. He goes, tries to go over 1,000 miles via sea. He tries to go west. God calls him east. And because he wants to ignore the grace call, he falls asleep. He falls asleep. He has to numb himself in order to not heed the grace call. He has to numb himself. Pat Benatar used to sing a song, I'm going to harden my heart. I'm going to do something and leave you, you know, I don't know the song except for, I'm going to harden my heart. And she sings it like that, you know. But some of you are that way. I'm going to harden my heart. And when we harden our heart, we become numb. We numb ourselves so we can sleep, sleep. So what does God do? Jonah doesn't want to go to Gentiles, so God puts him in a ship with Gentiles. Right? And here are Gentiles that are, going, that are trying so desperately to save Jonah's life. Jonah doesn't care about their lives. He's sleeping while they're in peril. They're getting rid of their goods. They're getting rid of um, everything on the ship that is important just so they can save Jonah's life. Finally, the captain comes down and he says, You're sleeping. You need to come up. The ship's about to sink. This is the worst storm ever. Everyone's calling on their gods. Call on your God. And he's a little reluctant. So they're like, well, who is your God? Who are you? And talk about the humiliation. You know, it says a gracious woman retains honor. What does that mean? It means that a non-gracious woman will be humiliated. You know, every time you give a person a piece of your mind I promise you within an hour you'll be so embarrassed within 20 minutes you'll be like I hope I never see them again because that was just so bad that that was the ugly that just came out of me like in the parking lot with the woman that I wanted my five dollars back from the ugly came out And Jonah was asleep to the peril of these men. He comes up on board, and he's got all these embarrassing questions. Where are you from? I'm a Hebrew. What are you doing running from my God? My God's responsible for this storm, and it's all about me because I'm disobedient. Throw me overboard, and it'll be over. And these men try so hard to do everything but throw Jonah overboard. They don't want to do it. They want to save Jonah's life, but Jonah doesn't care about saving their life. He's ready to sleep while others perish in the storm. God's put a call on our life to show grace to others because the world doesn't know grace. They don't know what it looks like, tastes like, feels like, acts like. That's why Jesus came in grace and truth. He showed what grace looks like, what grace sounds like gracious words he showed what grace feels like what grace does the goodness of grace the tastiness of grace but Jonah he's willing to let others die so finally the sailors at Jonah's insistence and because the storm is getting so bad they throw Jonah overboard and there's an immediate calm the Bible tells us in the book of Jonah that the Lord prepared a great fish. And this great fish, which my grandson swears is a megalodon, because they found a megalodon um, in the Mediterranean just about 15 years ago. It's huge, and it's on the bottom of the Mediterranean. They thought they were extinct. Uh, megalodon is a, uh, it's a type of fish that is like, larger than a gray whale, I mean, a sperm whale. It's absolutely huge. He showed me pictures of it. Look, Grandma, look what they found. See, that's what swallowed Jonah. Okay, hon, whatever you say, I believe you. And he had to teach me megalodon. I got it. Uh, like huge ladon. That's what it is. A Ladon." Swallows Jonah. And for three days and three nights, Jonah feels what hell is like. This is what he was conscripting those people to. This is what he wants the Ninevites to experience forever and ever and ever. He wants, this is it, and the Lord's letting him suffer in this. So he will not want anyone to suffer that kind of end, that kind of future That kind of life. I don't believe it's just a hell that happens after death. I believe Jonah was experiencing the life of a Ninevite. We're told that the wickedness of Nineveh was so great that it reached up to heaven. That that God couldn't ignore the wickedness of Nineveh, the violence. That the sorrow, the pain. I believe that people in Nineveh were living just to survive, that they would just take a breath and then something else would overwhelm them and they just kept coming up for air, that they felt constrained by, by all the tyranny and all the, the oppression around them, that they felt like they were caught and that they were just being eaten away by life. And in the belly of the well, God, or big fish, megalodon, because the Bible calls it a big fish, not a whale for those of you who are literalist. I didn't know my Bible, but I did go to Sunday school, and they always said big whale, so it's the Sunday school teacher's fault, just saying. (laughs) And some of those songs, some of those books that show a cute little whale that, let me swallow you. Not the real picture. So Jonah cries out to God, and in God's grace, he hears Jonah. He hears him, and he delivers them. He saves them. Years ago, when Char was, I told you, in the past, Char, who is now 36, was three. We taught him the story of Jonah, and he could say it, and he had this little list, so it was really cute. So you know how when your kids do something cute, you want to show them off to Grandma and Grandpa? So we took him to my mom and dad, and we're like, Okay, Char. Tell them the story of Jonah. And he's like, Jonah didn't want to obey the Lord, and he tried to take a ship across the sea to get away from what God told him to do. And what happened? He got swallowed by a big, big fish. And then what happened? He prayed. And what did he pray? Oh, Lord, spit me out. The fish spit Jonah out onto dry land. And then what happens? The call of God comes a second time. Isn't that amazing? I mean, if someone was running that hard, sleeping, that rebellious, I don't know about you, but it's like, I'll find someone else who wants to do it. We can be like that little red hen. Remember that story of the little red hen who wanted somebody to help her you know, plant the kernels of wheat? Not I, said the pig. Not I, said the dog. Not I, said the duck. Then the little red hen said, then I'll do it myself. And then she says, who will help me harvest the wheat? Not I, said the pig. Not I, said the dog. Not I, said the duck. Who will help me thresh the wheat? Not I, said the duck. Not I, said the dog. Not I, said the pig. Then I'll thresh it myself. Who will help me bake the bread, said the little red hen. Not I, said the duck. Not I, said the dog. Not I, said the pig. Then I'll bake it myself. Then she brings out this homemade bread, which we all know that hens do not make bread, but nevertheless. (laughs) Suspend your incredulity for a while. She brings it out. Who will help me eat my bread? I will, said the duck. I will, said the dog. I will, said the pig. No, you won't, said the little red hen, and she ate the bread all up herself. That's how I am. My mom used to read me that story, and I'm like, go red hen, go red hen, go red hen. God doesn't do that to us. He keeps giving us another chance. It's the same call. Go to Nineveh. Tell those people to repent. So Jonah goes. And he is the most successful evangelist on record. He's got a mean message. 40 days and you're all dead if you don't repent. (laughs) And yet the people go, oh, thank you. I repent. What about you? I'm repenting too. Let's all repent. Gets to the king's palace. The king proclaims to the whole city, everyone, repent, put on sackcloth and ashes, and let us cry out for mercy from God. The whole city cries out for mercy from God. God relents. Is Jonah happy? No. <laughs> no. He's so mad that he goes out and he gets his He makes a shelter for himself, and he just stares at Nineveh. And you know what he wants? He wants judgment. He is waiting for judgment. That's all he wants is judgment to come down on the Ninevites. And he's arguing with the Lord out there. I know. This is all your fault. I knew you were gracious. I knew you were merciful. I know that you always relent. And doing wrath because you just want to save people all the time. just want to spare them. You know, I think, Jonah knew what a lot of us forget, that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. But he pitches his tent in the desert, waiting for judgment. And let me tell you this. It was a dry, deserted, desert, hot, miserable place to be but i know a lot of christians who have pitched their tents outside the church outside the body of christ and all they want is judgment and they're just waiting for judgment you know they're singing that somebody done somebody wrong song and that's all they do waiting for judgment And when you're waiting for God to judge somebody, even if that person deserves judgment, it will ruin your life. You will be in a dry, deserted desert and miserable, all alone, miserable. And that's where Jonah was, just watching Nineveh, just wanting God to judge, not liking God's timing, Not liking God's grace, not liking God's mercy, but just calling down wrath and wanting wrath instead of mercy. Jonah sits there. And I love how God's going to teach this graceless prophet again, again, instead of saying, you know, I'll get another prophet who's nice. God works, and now it says that God prepared a gourd, and he brings up this gourd, and it provides shade for for Jonah. It's miraculous. It just grows quickly, and Jonah can find some relief from the scorching heat of the sun, but then God prepares a worm, one worm, and this worm eats away at this gourd, and the gourd dies, and Jonah is is so upset, but then God has one other thing. He prepares a really hot east wind as if it wasn't hot enough. And temperatures in that desert can reach up to 140 degrees. There it is. And this hot wind is blowing across the sand, and Jonah's exposed to the elements with no relief, and he's absolutely miserable and in this miserable state god begins to speak to him about grace again even as in the other miserable state the belly of the fish god spoke to him of grace now he's going to speak about grace again grace towards others just like just like in the first time in the ship these unbelievers had more grace than Jonah. They received the grace of God. The Ninevites received the grace of God. That grace that Jonah wanted to ride hide from, flee from, refuse. These Ninevites said, "Give it to us, we want it. We'll take all the grace that he's willing to give." So as the hot wind blows, God speaks. And says, Jonah, you have more grace for Gord. You have more empathy, more sympathy for Gord. Why? Because the Gourd brought Jonah shade. The Gourd did something for, for Jonah. What was Jonah going to get out of the Ninevites? How could he profit from the Ninevites? From their salvation? From their emancipation? From God showing them grace? He didn't see any profit from that. But the gourd was making him a little bit more comfortable, giving him relief. He had more grace for a gourd than the people. And God said, you know what? I have grace for Nineveh. There are, there are hundreds of people that don't even know their right hand from their left hand in that city. And you want to judge those people? There's, there's cattle and sheep animals in that city. I have grace on my creation. We're told in Lamentations that God does not afflict readily or easily. We're also told in the word of God in the Psalms that in all their affliction he was afflicted. He felt it too. We don't want to be like Jonah. But God we, we want to learn grace easily. Yes, I see your grace. I receive it. Help my gracelessness and give me more grace. We want to be filled up with grace. The way to get more grace is to use the grace you have. Use your grace. Use the grace that God has given you. Use it for others. Use the grace. Jesus said, to whom much is given, much will be required. And those who have much will be given much more. But those who do not have, even what they have will be taken away. If we do not use the grace of God that he has given us, it will be taken away. If we're sitting outside just waiting for judgment, if there's somebody in your life that you're just waiting for judgment to fall, you're wanting judgment to fall. You know, I knew people that were Love the idea of the rapture so much, but they just wanted to hide in their houses and wait for the rapture and let everybody else perish. The rapture is to make us want to save as many as possible, to go out through this burning earth and save as many as we can from the fire, that they might go to heaven with us. That's what the... The whole doctrine of the rapture is supposed to do. Not make us hide and just like, Judgment's coming, can't wait. That's for you, neighbor, and you, neighbor, and you across the street, too. We're all going to get it. I've told you this story before if you've gone to Joyful Life, but I was walking through this place called um, Hyde Park. There was a woman, she's all, she was wearing like a nurse's outfit, like a white hat, she had a bullhorn. And this is what she was doing. You're going to hell, and you're going to hell, and you're going to hell, and you're going to hell. And I stood in front of her, and I said, I'm not going to hell. I'm going to heaven. No, you only... She never put the bullhorn down. No, you only think you're going to heaven. You're going to hell. And I said, no. No. Because the blood of Jesus Christ has forgiven me every sin and it has made me a child of God and the spirit, the eternal spirit of Jesus Christ lives in me and I'm going to heaven to be with my savior, and my king forever and ever. Nope, you're not. You're going to hell. And he's going to hell too. Pointing to Brian, he's going to hell and they're going to hell pointing to my children. And I said, oh no, we're not, we're all covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. Brian's like, Come on, Cheryl, come on. No, Brent! i got to win this one, you know? I think I can take her down. But here's someone, you know, got the Jonah thing, just waiting for everyone to perish. I'm saved. I don't care about you. I know the God of Israel. I don't care if you know the God of Israel. I know the redemption, the emancipation, the goodness, the grace of God. Don't you want everyone to know that grace? Don't you want to show them and exemplify and draw them in? There is nothing like the grace of Jesus. Nothing like it. It removes competition. It removes comparison. It removes all condemnation. It removes all complaining. It removes all corrosive speech. It removes it. When we speak grace, and Paul said, let your speech be filled with grace. Oh, when we speak grace over each other, it changes everything. When we wash each other's feet with grace, just, oh, they're not that bad. Don't they feel fresh now? Does this tickle? When we do this to each other's feet, when we seek to be filled with that same grace that was in Christ Jesus, that he wants in us, and we begin to use this by the grace of God, We begin to use it, oh my goodness, there will be revival like you can't believe. There will be a change because the world is thirsty for the grace and they they haven't seen anything like this grace. Now maybe you're saying, Cheryl, I want that grace, but you don't know my life. I've got all these impediments to grace. For instance, if I didn't have the husband I have, I could have grace. But if you were married to Herman, you'd have a hard time too. Or maybe you're saying, Cheryl, if you lived in my neighborhood or had my neighbors, mm -mm, I could serve God so much better if I didn't have this husband or this marriage or this neighborhood or this neighbor or this job or this deficit. Paul said, God, I could serve you so much better if I didn't have this thorn in the flesh. And God said, no, you couldn't. No, you couldn't. Because if you didn't have that thorn in the flesh, you might be doing things I haven't called you to do. You might be going hither, thither, and yon. But I've given this to you, to hold you close, and to show you the sufficiency of my grace, Paul. This is better. It's better this way, because now, in this place of deficiency, Paul, you're going to know a power and a strength that is divine. You are going to know a love that is supernatural. You're going to know an extraordinary motivation that you've never felt before. You're going to do things not by your own strength, but by the power of my grace, and it's going to be better. And when Paul began to feel that grace, he was like, Oh, this is amazing! I have realized that when I'm weak, then I'm really strong. So now I'm like, infirmity, bring it on. Pain, oh yeah. Because I have begun to see Jesus' power. I've begun to feel his power resonating through me. You know, one of the worst things we do as women is when people come to us and ask for prayer and we try to give them advice. We give them a recipe. We give them, no offense, an essential oil when they need the essential Jesus. They don't come to me to have Cheryl's advice. I'm not a financial consultant. I'm not even that good with my own finances. I am not a dietitian. I am not a nutritionist. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a psychologist. I'm very limited, and God has limited me in those fields so that when people come to me, I can only give them Jesus. It's all you're going to get just going to get Jesus. We're going to take you right into the throne room of grace and say, here she is. I'll leave her here, and uh, I'm going to go to the beach. (laughs) But we need to give people grace. We need to run them into the throne room of grace and say, here, Lord, I present this person to you, and they need you. God wants to use our deficits, but so many times we're saying, no, no, no. I've got this deficit, and God says, "Mm mm-mm, it's through this deficit that you're going to see my strength. It's through this deficit that I'll be glorified, that you won't lean on your own understanding. You won't lean into yourself, but lean into my grace. On the other hand, sometimes we say to the Lord, if only I had, if only I had, if only I had a husband like Brian Broderson. Don't say that. <laughs> if only I had a friend if only I had a dog like Barnabas don't say that he pulls he almost pulled me into the water the other day and in great (laughs) if only I had money in my bank account if only I had a million dollars if only I had a better house then I would have people in for a Bible study if only I had a better this if only I had this or that Don't say that, because even in that, God says, I want to be your everything. I want to be your bank account. I was reading this morning in Matthew chapter 6, where God says, or Jesus says, who is God? Your Father in heaven knows what you have need of. He said, the Gentiles, speaking of those without God, they're always worried about what they're going to wear, what they're going to eat, how they're going to live. But it shall not be so with you, because you have a Heavenly Father who feeds the birds, who cares for the lilies. And are you not of much more value than these? But seek first the kingdom of God and and his righteousness, his strength, his grace, and everything you need will be given to you. Everything comes after that. Make that a priority. We have a champion of grace who came with grace, exemplified grace, fought for grace on the cross, ever lives to make intercession for us that we might have all the grace we need, gives us grace for our deficits, whatever they are, and is calling us into a life of grace. Are you going to be a Jonah? Do you want to be a Jonah? No, no. Thank you. I answer my own questions. Do you want to be a Jonah? No. If I was comparing or if there was competition, no, I'm just kidding. I'd say a little anemic, but I'm not going to say that because I'm going to show grace. Do you want to be a Jonah? No. Better. I don't want to be Jonah. I don't want to be looking for the wrath and vengeance. God get even with that person, that person, that person. They hurt me, they hurt me, they hurt me, they hurt me. I want to be one who answers the call of God. And and you know, Jesus said, One who is better than Jonah is among you. One with a better message. One with a better gift is among you. Jesus' message was not 40 days and you're dead. He was repent for the kingdom of God is here. Grace is available to any and all. And all you need is to come and drink as much as you want. And it will be given to you. This is the message. And the last message of the Bible is that the spirit and the bride say come, come, come. And let all who are thirsty come and drink of the fountain of life. God wants us as the bride not to be camped outside the world going, you're going to hell. But to say, look at this fountain of grace. Look what's available here. Come. Are you thirsty? Are you tired of living in the belly of a fish come come and drink freely of the river of life let's pray lord i pray for my sisters we thank you for grace lord we thank you that you came with grace we thank you that you want to fill us with grace lord don't let us be like jonah don't let us try to run and hide and be numb rather than give grace don't let us live outside deserted and lonely and dry Lord, because of a lack of grace, oh God, will you renew, will you renew your spirit of grace in us? Lord, may we open right now our hearts wide. And right now, I'm just, let's just take a moment. And just right now, just ask God to fill your heart again with grace. You don't even have to ask him to drive out the gracelessness. Just let the water of grace, just flood out everything that doesn't belong in that heart. Just with your eyes closed, just don't hit the neighbor. Put your hands up as big as you want your portion of grace to be. As much grace as you want, let it be seen by how high and how how big your, your whatever hands going up in the air thing is. Just ask him for grace. God, I... We want grace. Lord, I want a Mount Everest of grace. I want an ocean of grace. I need grace, Lord. Your daughters, you see them right now as every eye is closed. Lord, flood over us right now, each one with that river of grace. Drive out all the gracelessness. Lord, if we're living in a desert, make it an oasis. Lord, change us. Work in us by grace. Lord, not by our self-effort not by getting our deficits filled by this earth or by our own effort, but simply by the Spirit of God, flood us with grace and do your greatest work in us, that you might work through us your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.